keeping it rolling, as you all know, has, has been the, the last two straight days. We we built in no time in between, so we're going to keep these panels rolling. Um, so, we're, you know, the next panel is super interesting. It's actually uh, a, a panel that I think a lot of our angel investors and in our, in our angelist syndicate are going to be really interested in, um, especially because biotech in general has been a very hot uh, area for early stage venture, at least in in the ecosystem that, I, that I'm associated to. So really excited to have this conversation today. Uh, let's start with just some introductions. Uh, maybe Sam, do you want to start? Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks for having me on. So I'm Sam. I founded Terran. I'm the founder and CEO. I did my undergrad degree in neuro at MIT and my MD and my PhD at Columbia. And I founded the company back in 2017 and we've grown to a larger uh, platform company. Okay, Pete. Hi, um, my name is Peter Wermelshausen. I'm originally from the Netherlands. <clears throat> I um, grew up uh, loving to code and play with computers, got into startups. And uh, back in 2007, that led me to start a company called Shapeways, which has brought me here to New York and um, built Shapeways out to, for over 10 years. And then two, uh, in four years ago, I stepped down and uh, met my current co-founders at Humane Genomics, where we decided to 3D print DNA to make cancer-killing viruses. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about me. Wow, wow, okay. Well, lots of lots of uh, stuff to get into. I wanna start with this question for both of you, actually. Like, what was the aha moment? Like you start, like what was the moment when you said like, we're onto something, there's something here, I, I, or this is something I wanna work on. Uh, maybe Pete just kind of would just, you know, kind of piggybacking off what you were just saying. You know, do you have a, a specific like aha moment, we're onto something? So yeah, um, I mean, there's several through the boot up of a company, right? But the first one I had when, you know, after stepping down and wanting to do something completely different and maybe more impactful even than what I did at Shapeways is that I um, was talking to my current co-founders and they completely unbeknownst to me, biology went from an observant uh, science to an active science where you can do things. And I realized that you can now basically write code in DNA, you can program life. And I went like, what? And my co-founder and chief science officer, Chad, is a, is, is a star at that. So he showed me certain things and I went like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, and then uh, Andrew offered like, well, killing cells is the easiest thing you can do, right? Repairing them is harder. So let's start with killing. And what cells do you want to kill? Let's, let's kill cancer cells. So that was a very <laughs> compelling first realization of like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And we're just at the, even though it's possible now, and we've been working on this on, for five years, this is just something that happened in the last decade or so. So what's going to happen in the future is going to be mind blowing. Okay. So that was the aha moment that got you to, to say, Hey, this is something I want to go tackle. Now, has there been another one of those moments where you said, Hey, we're making progress. And, 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 and this is, this is becoming something that is, you know, really feasible. We can actually kill cancer cells. Sure. So we had a thesis and that is that, that cancer cells are different from healthy cells because they express a different mix of proteins very highly, right? They, they have an unusual set of proteins that makes them different. Now, if you look at only one protein, one receptor or one marker, you may have other healthy cells that have the same one. But if you have two, three proteins that are highly expressed, you start, that was a thesis, then you can identify friend from foe, right? And 
what we set out to do is to actually build viruses that could recognize those markers and only replicate and thus kill cells in the presence of those markers. Mm-hmm. And we had a few, a few of those components earmarked. But then I think back in 22, when we had that in a finally working in a replication competent virus, when we saw the virus replicate in cells with those markers, and we didn't see any activity, however hard we tried, in cells that didn't have those markers, I went like, wow, this is cool. And then we started to see the selective ratios, like we could put such high concentrations on healthy cells and nothing would happen, and very low concentrations on cancer cells, and it would all die. Wow. Uh, I think it's a very simple, easy to understand model. And I think it will, even will translate from cells to, and we have the data now in mice, towards humans as well. Incredible, incredible. Sam, let's go, Let's kind of break it down in that same kind of uh, methodology here that, that Pete took. The aha moment that got you to say, hey, let me work on this. And the aha moment of saying, hey, we're onto something, like as you started to work on it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So this all goes back to um, when I was growing up and when I was in college, you know, I had um, family members and friends with severe mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. And as I dug into that, I began to notice that the treatments weren't very good and uh, the mechanism which they were working was very old. So there weren't really many new treatments, nothing really novel, and they didn't work very well. And so I went and I uh, did my undergrad at Neuro and MIT and then my MD and PhD, and I wanted to then develop new treatments for mental and neurological conditions. So that was the moment when I said, all right, I'm going to found Terran Biosciences so I can actually build out a kind of a new way of developing these therapies. And I've formed the company actually modeled on the tech companies from Silicon Valley. And then the aha moment in the science, I mean, we've, we've had a number, I mean, the company's grown hundreds of times larger since then. And so now we have partnerships with Santa Fe where we acquired their largest neuro programs, 15,000 patients data in a partnership where we have been able to remove the hallucinations from psychedelics and maintain some of the therapeutic effects in the, the models we're looking at. And then in another way, there was a drug that was highly effective for schizophrenia, phase three asset from Pierre Fabre in France. But it had to be dosed multiple times a day. We licensed that on too, a full ready to go neuroasset, fixed it, created a once daily drug and put it back in the clinic where wow. people thought it could never be fixed. We've created new peptide versions in the obesity space, uh, new versions of drugs like Ozempic. We're one of the largest manufacturers of psychedelics and we've got a whole number of new um, antipsychotics coming out uh, later this year. I actually just read literally today um, that California is considering um, legalizing psychedelics for medical purposes. Is that something that is, uh, on, I assume it has to be on your radar? How does that impact your, you know, kind of strategy and business decisions right now? Well, that won't really impact us either way. Um, I think uh, a number of states are kind of decriminalizing use of mushrooms or MDMA or other psychedelics. But what we're doing is down kind of the traditional path with the FDA. So we still have to do, we do clinical trials, we'd have to go for FDA clearance. And then the goal is building uh, prescription drugs that you can take uh, in an at-home setting, but that you'd get from your doctor. The idea being that psychedelics have shown to have amazing efficacy. The problem is that because they require a multi-hour trip, that can limit patient access because FDA has said, well, you have to have a doctor with you the whole time. And that can be expensive. And so you've got a cost and you have a time problem. But what we found is that you can combine the psychedelic with another drug that just pulls out the hallucination only, allowing the psychedelic to maintain its efficacy on the other receptors. And by that, our goal is to have that as a take-home medication 
to, to get the antidepressant effects of the psychedelic without the um, requirement to go into the hospital, sit there for six hours and have potentially negative effects from having a potentially bad trip as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about um, technology and how that impacts your business in a way. So, you know, what are some of the key technological advancements that, you know, maybe have taken place in genomics or in psychedelics or in neuroscience that like enable new possibilities in the work? Um, you know, Pete, maybe we could start with you just talking a little bit about how and how you leverage those technologies. Yep. No, and I was uh, listening to the, the previous panel, right? Standing on the shoulder of giants. It's kind of cool to see how businesses use the technology of previous ones and then you bootstrap further and further ahead. Absolutely. So um, a few here, um, the ability to, to, to read DNA, right? That was 20 years ago, that was an enormous problem. Nowadays, everybody can do it with everything, right? Um, mm -hmm. We have a small um, sequencer, full-length sequencer, Mini-Ion, that costs 1500 bucks. And for like $500 in library prep, you can sequence whatever you want, full length, not even small segments. So, and then DNA synthesis, like, so now you have the DNA, let's change it. Well, how you do that? Well, you can generate the D new DNA sequence on a computer, send the file to, to a service, and then you get the DNA back a couple of days later. And then the advent of CRISPR, you can then change it or start with the whole de novo assembly and make something from scratch is how we approach it. So those are just a few, the easy availability of qPCR. Um, you know, there are just a few of those technologies. And then what I actually liked what you said, Sam, is like use some of the, because I have a background more in, in tech, use mm -hmm. some of the, the learnings in tech to keep things small to repeatable, build a platform that gives you high flywheel effects. And you use those new technologies and all of a sudden, you know, biology starts to, to accelerate its, its developmental speed uh, beyond belief. Is there, and this is actually a question, just out of curiosity, is there an open source technology like ecosystem in, in your area, in your area of, uh, in, in like, in this area of expertise? Uh, there are, so on the software side to an analyze mm -hmm. data, there is quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen an open source qPCR machine, which mm -hmm. I loved uh, when I saw it and actually almost, um, you know, couldn't resist but buying the kit and trying to set it, put it together myself, but refrained. Yeah. Um, but um, so there is that. I'm not so sure whether there are already open source sequencers. I wouldn't be surprised they'll, they'll come. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's also software analysis, right? And mm -hmm. uh, the availability of hardware, like, for instance, the analysis of, of DNA sequencing. When we first did that on our computers, it took us 24 hours, even for a viral genome of 15 KB, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 15,000 base pairs analysis out of the data set took us a whole day. And then I realized maybe we can accelerate this with a GPU. So we put a GPU in that computer, got some libraries going, and now we do it real time. So yeah. within an hour after putting the library prep on the sequencer, we have our full answer. Gotcha. And gotcha. That, all, all these things are interplaying and it's, it's, it's really cool. Super interesting. Sam, what about you? Uh, is there Are there technologies that are uh, really enabling you guys to do more uh, advanced work? Yes, so a couple. One, we also have a big software division at Terran, and we just got a software as a medical device cleared, a full AI-enabled plat cloud-based platform that analyzes MRI scans. For a bioworker called neural melanin. Took my, that was my follow-up question about AI, so continue. I was going to ask well, that next. So if we have that, and that world's first ever platform to measure neural melanin in the brain. That's one. And then the second thing is in the medicinal chemistry space, 
we have this thing we're using uh, called approach using prodrugs. And what mm -hmm. that means is you may have a highly effective compound that's safe and has a long history of human use, like psilocybin, let's say, mm -hmm. or even uh, MDMA. But what if you want to improve on its pharmacokinetics? And what that means is you want to shorten how it acts in the body, make it more accessible. Or maybe in some cases you want to lengthen it. You know, MDMA, they have to dose twice during a therapy session because it wears off. So in order to do that, you have two options. You could create a whole new compound, but new compounds are often found to be toxic, have safety issues. You got to go through all the years of testing again. And you, even then, you don't know if those modifications you made lose the efficacy. So the way we do it is a prodrug where you take the original molecule, you attach specific um, chains to the side, which can shield the molecule from breakdown, improve how it's absorbed or lengthen its time in the body or shorten it depending on what you add. That's you can control the molecule. Once it's in the bloodstream, that side chain falls off. Mm -hmm. It means just the natural original molecule is going to the brain. So you have this extra part. Think of it like the booster on a rocket engine. You know, you've mm -hmm. got the capsule at the top that's got to go to the moon, and you have the booster. And you're adding this extra booster so that it'll go exactly where it needs to go and wow. then deliver just the right payload. And by doing that, we have made some world first. We created the world's first orally active form of a compound called DMT. Before that, you had to combine it with a second compound called an MAO inhibitor that caused nausea and vomiting. With us, we fixed it by adding a side chain. We created the world's first long-acting MDMA that can go all day from a single MDMA dose. We improved psychedelics called 2CB, MDEA, and all sorts of other ones, new forms of LSD and psilocybin. And um, that's how we also fixed some of the um, other drugs in the pipeline. Sam, you must be a hell of a time at a party, <laughs> Pete. So tell, okay, so that you know, this is this was, this was great. Can you guys talk a little bit about as founders? You know, you're you're building these scientific innovate. I mean, most of the companies we've had on these panels over the last two days have been you know really pure software companies. I think there's been about maybe three panels that have been kind of the mix of science and and tech. But you know, you guys are driving these scientific innovation companies. What are some of the biggest challenges you face as founders? And then how do you maintain that creativity? And psychedelics might be the answer, but <laughs> how do you maintain the, that that creativity to be able to uh, continue to be pushing forward on innovation? while having such operational businesses by, underneath you. Pete, right. or, yeah, Sam, go, get going. Oh, sure, go ahead, Pete, I'll, then I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah, no, that is a, it's a very good question. And um, having built a company before from zero to 250 people, I've seen some of the dynamics. Um, so I think you can learn from what, what others have done is like keep small groups and, and, and look at their preferences, right? You have people who love to op to marginally improve, continuously improve processes. Mm -hmm. And then you have others who love the ambiguity of not knowing and just trying to figure things out. And uh, depending on the project type or the, the vision of the company, depending on the size you're at, you want to group those people together on certain tasks. So it's, it's a lot about culture. Right. Mm -hmm. Also that you that ingrain a certain mindset, a certain thing like um, that failure is acceptable. But on the other end, that reproducibility is key. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, one of the things that I, I really like to see is that we keep reproducing certain experiments to make sure that we have a, a baseline that always works, uh, because what we're working on is um, is so hard to measure. Like viruses are complicated things and easy things at the same time. So m making sure that you can measure correctly what you're doing is non-trivial. Non and um, so keeping a certain cadence. So it's culture, 
it's a way of working, making sure the right people are working on the right projects as you scale the company, keeping the group small. Mm -hmm. um, there are all kinds of methods you can do to, to keep that innovation going. Sam, well, same question for you. So when I founded the company, I decided to do a completely different structure than things ever been done in biotech. And that is that I had been looking at a lot of biotechs which use that traditional hierarchical top-down model. And I noticed that sometimes when things get stuck at one part in that, you know, top-down, you know, things get moved up and down the hierarchy, things can get missed and that can derail entire clinical trials or mess up the development of drugs. So what I built was a more flat management um, landscape that I modeled after the fast moving companies that I was seeing, you know, Snapchat, Facebook, and other companies said, how can they move so quickly? And in biotech, things move so slowly. And so what we did was I built first a team of highly trained operators. And from them, we then assemble teams of world experts to solve specific problems, like the problem of how to make the long acting drug or how mm -hmm. to solve a certain clinical issue. And with the big pharma assets we've acquired and by building these little independent teams, and then we have a very small team of managers managing across in a flat way and then reporting up without the hierarchy, we've mm -hmm. enabled us to move very quickly and accomplish a lot in a short period of time and solve problems that people previously had told us they thought were essentially impossible. Wow, wow. It's, it's really, I mean, the, the, the level of interdisciplinary like skill sets that are needed um, and balancing that and managing that and, and making sure that the, the knowledge is, you know, cross pollinates, uh, you know, it, it's just so, it's, a, it's not an easy task. Can you guys talk a little bit now on the on the business side about you know the the capital intensiveness of these types of works? I mean, I don't know, Pete. Maybe we could start with you. Like you, you guys have you know how capital intensive is the the, the process, the research, the you know the R and D, and then taking a project, a, a product from exploratory stage, you know, to an approved marketed product. Yeah. So that is one of the things people warned me about. Um, given my tech background going into biotech like uh, careful it's more expensive and i think to some degree that's true but in another degree i we've been able to keep uh, us very very efficient mm -hmm. uh, by being you know very lean about things making sure that we have limited inventory knowing what we need etc so there are, we actually i think are are very very capital uh, efficient um but as you then start to approach, as you mentioned, uh, Sam, uh, preclinical or clinical trials, then all of a sudden you can try as you might, but certain things you can't get around. Um, although I think there are some things you can optimize, um, like for instance, production is, you know, if you work closely with your production partners, you can probably optimize a lot because there's a lot of hidden assumptions that can make things very expensive, I found. Mm -hmm. But there is some some cost to it, and then of course when you go to trials, there I have less visibility at this moment how you could optimize that. But I think especially in the discovery phase, and then leading including the production for preclinical work, you know, um, biotech is getting more affordable. It's more accessible for for startups to get into for sure. It's mm -hmm. no longer that you need tens of millions of dollars to get anything done. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a fraction of that, and um, we we proved our whole platform. Wow. Sam, uh, Sam, what about on your end in, in the in the neuro world? I think it's based on uh, what I was describing, using the small team of full-time employees and then bringing on world's experts as consultants. It keeps the burn extraordinarily low. And then we don't just pick, when we're going with vendors to, that we do for manufacturing, and we don't just pick the first one we find. When we set up manufacturing, we 
I actually evaluated 220 manufacturing groups around the world. Whereas most groups we were talking to, oh, we looked at five. We took 220 before we found one that was able to manufacture all our psychedelics exclusively at a tenth of what it would have cost us to do it in the U.S., and things like that. And we're a global company. You know, we have manufacturing in Europe. We have manufacturing in China. We have clinical trials in Australia. We have medicinal chemistry being developed in the UK. I mean, we, we're all over the um, the world right now with different offices and subsidiaries. And, and Sam, are there, are, are, like, can you talk a little bit about the products that you have that are in market generating revenue for the business or, you know, where you are on that journey? Right. So two things. The first thing is uh, we just got FDA clearance to launch software as a medical device, fully right. automated cloud-based, can integrate with any hospital where you patient will come in, get an MRI, it'll send it to our cloud automatically and send back a result in 30 minutes. Hmm. And that we're actually preparing to launch right now. Oh, the wow. second thing is one of the largest, if not the largest manufacturer of psychedelics worldwide. You know, We produce more psilocybin, LSD, MDMA than any group we're aware of. And we're actually providing it completely for free for researchers and clinicians globally. But we actually plan on uh, putting those on the market as FDA cleared products shortly um, under something called a 505B2 path. What that means is that if somebody gets, let's say, let's take psilocybin for an example. If somebody gets psilocybin, the molecule approved, that's an old molecule. It's been around for a long time. So what that means is the FDA gives you five years of exclusivity, and then after five years is up, another company can come in, use all the phase three data from the first company, and put a generic uh, or a branded you know, second product on. Now, our goal is safe, affordable medications for patients, and we are ready right now to put generics or essentially you know, be branded, but you know, 505B2 cheap versions on for psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, and any of the other psychedelics that may be FDA approved. For example, MDMA is under FDA review right now for mm -hmm. approval. If mm -hmm. it's approved in the next year, five years from now, Terran, which all, we're already manufacturing MDMA, we're ready to go. Five years from now, we'll put our own MDMA on to make sure patients have the most affordable treatments possible. And the form of MDMA we would put on is actually a new improved form so the patients have an additional benefit. So we're, that's why we're, we're so excited. In addition, we have our own late stage, you know, schizophrenia space therapeutics that we're developing all the way through. So we do both. the develop right. them all the way through and then the quick 505B2 to get affordable treatments to patients quickly. Got it. Got it. And, and Pete, similar question around, you know, the path to revenue and where you guys are on that journey. Yeah. No, and I completely agree with Sam on the, on the affordability of drugs, right? I mean, uh, I have a... Our view is is cancer therapies, and if you see some of the new advanced stuff coming out, it's amazing that we can give more and more hope to to patients. But if you see the price tags going into a million per therapy, like I'm starting to wonder who's going to afford that, right? And you could say, well, you have insurance for that, but like at some point, that insurance is paid by all of us. So go, at some point, that becomes a a big big problem for all of us. What I'm excited about is that. We have strong data that with replicating capable viruses greatly engineered, you can actually make therapies for reasonable costs. Even if it's the first uh, drug you bring to market, you can actually make these for, for, for reasonable amounts. And we're really passionate about that because making cancer drugs is one thing, reducing the suffering of, of many millions of people, because it's not only people dying from cancer or being very sick, but it's also the fear factor, right? I mean, 
lots and lots of people are waiting for a diagnosis that could be negative and you're fine, but in those weeks you're waiting, you're not feeling great, right? I mean, uh, what if? Mm-hmm. So giving, working, and then also available at reasonable cost medicine for, for, for serious um, conditions like cancer, we're really passionate about bringing the cost down to. Whilst, of course, building a, a profitable company. Where we are in that path, we're on the precipice of going preclinical. And, you know, depending on who you want to believe, about two years from now, we should be in the clinic. And then depending on what indication, we're, we're looking at very aggressive types of cancers. So our data development should be rather quick. Mm-hmm. So, but from the moment you're in, in the clinic, uh, you're helping people already. And then hopefully soon thereafter, we can start doing um, good deals with, uh, with partners to get this to the market as soon as possible. Gotcha. So a couple of years out still. Gotcha. Can we? T- uh, I always like to ask this question of founders in, in different industries. Uh, let's put your investor hat on for a moment. You know, take a step out of the. You know, it's very rare that you get to take a step out <laughs> for a quick second. But if you were to put an investor hat on, and in you in the area that you guys work within, you know, what are the areas that you would be wanting to deploy capital? If you put, if you were a VC investing in biotech, um, you know, where would you want? Where do you think there's opportunity? Where would you want to be deploying capital? Maybe Sam, I'll start with you. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's largely what we've, we're focused on. So we have a few things at Terran. We've got some of the things I told you about, kind of long-range plays that increase the valuation for Terran. But we have a few things that are going to be publicly announced later this year that we think will attach multiples to our current valuation. And in doing that, so we focus on both the long-term and the short-term. And mm-hmm. one of these short-term things is a M&A target that we are, you know, putting on the, essentially putting on the market out there to, um, for acquisition later this year. And we think this will produce a potential for a very large multiple on our current valuation, giving investors both the, a potential upside of both close range and long range. But the, um, we've already, each, from each round, we've had a multiple on the valuation. We think there's a big one coming up. Mm-hmm. And, and are you, are, are you, where, where would you, where do you see opportunities outside of your own business in terms of just the market in general? Oh, outside of biotech, you mean? Yeah, you, know, you know, outside of your company, but like in other areas, mm-hmm. like are there technology areas or areas within science that you think, hey, I would love, if I was a venture capitalist, I'd want to invest in X, Y, Z. Well, that is actually a good question because, and that's a bit why we're kind of diverse in Terran, is that when I see those opportunities, I bring them into Terran. So I'll give you an example. You know, Terran started just as neuro, but then we saw that new versions of these metabolic improved peptides are fetching enormous prices on the market, billion dollar deals. Ozempic's pulling 12 and a half billion in revenue and the new versions are getting bought out for a huge billion. So I said, guys, look, we just made all these psychedelic breakthroughs. We've created more new psychedelics than any group in history now. We will now put the psychedelic, no more new psychedelics because we've got enough, we'll make new peptides. And mm-hmm. so we, so anytime we have this, that's why we have this big drug development platform at Terran, yeah. wherever yeah. we see. And now we're looking into the oncology space in certain areas. Um, we've got, we expanded into the peptide space. So wherever we kind of see that, and that's how we expand into the software space. Mm-hmm. So wherever we see a near-term opportunity and the most near-term is the metabolic space. So I would yeah. say if I had capital deploy, I would do that, but we are doing that in the mm-hmm. metabolic space. Got so it, that's why essentially I do spend a lot of time thinking, looking for new opportunities to bring into the company. And then when mm-hmm. we bring them in, we com- we get them wrapped up for quick commercialization. And that's we good. should, we're hoping to commercialize potentially or capitalize on some of these assets in the next year. 
Yeah, I mean, that sounds like you, you guys sound like you're very active on the M&A front. Pete, what about yourself? If you put your investor hat on, what are some of the areas that excite you right now? Yeah, so limited to biotech, um, I would say measurement, uh, improved measurement capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, like there are some cool things happening on, for instance, uh, cell viability tracking, but using AI to further improve cell viability tracking Mm -hmm. It's definitely something that would benefit cancer research uh, a lot. Uh, manufacturing capabilities, uh, Sam already mentioned, like, you know, he found a place outside of the United States that is an order of magnitude cheaper than here. That's in a sense great, but also not so great, right? I mean, so can we manufacture smart, but also local? Because mm -hmm. local manufacturing has a, has a benefit, we've learned. Mm -hmm. um, and that is like not only for cancer therapies, but like there are many different things like uh, lentiviruses, mRNA production, vaccine technology, um, which might be both commercial, but even the government should play a role in, in some cases uh, to just accelerate certain things because they're prohibitively expensive. You know, people sell at the price that they can fetch in this industry, which is not always the best way to do it. Yeah. Right? Sometimes you want a price for a maximum P times V, right? So you have the maximum amount of revenue instead of the maximum amount of profit. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Those are a few of the things. So measure, better measurement devices, manufacturing of, um, of materials that we need. There Got are it. huge opportunities there. Yeah, makes sense. I, I wonder, is, is and I know we have to wrap here, 3D printing, does that impact your space at all right now? You know, it came up in the last space, in the space conversation, but is 3D printing involved in the manufacturing process at all for you guys? Not, not for us really, unless you like if it 3D printing is digital to physical, right? And what yeah. we're doing is we design our DNA in a computer digital and we then synthesize it. So yeah. in, in a sense, we're 3D printing DNA, but yes. uh, for plastics and metals, not so much. Gotcha. gotcha. And we're printing essentially peptides. Once we design our new peptides, there's machines that print out exactly the sequences you want. So we're, we're very excited using that. That's very cool. Guys, I could, I could have last, I could have won another half hour really easy with you guys. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. This was a lot of fun. Uh, Sam, Pete, uh, we're, I'm so excited to be able to bring opportunities like this to our investor community at the at RBV. And uh, we're, we're, you know, we're thrilled to continue to support you guys and, and, uh, and can't wait to see what else, uh, what else comes from you guys and how, how else uh, we could support you. So thank you so much. Um, and guys, I think we are, we have two more panels today. We've been, we've been cranking through um, and uh, we're, we're going to top off now and then there'll be another panel coming up. Thanks for having us on. Thanks, Appreciate yeah, having, having investors. All right. Thanks, guys. This has been a Red Beard Ventures production.